this morning we are going to be in Matthew chapter 9. Okay, so Matthew chapter 9, as we continue our series on servant leadership, specifically looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus. So as you turn there, um, today we're going to be talking about a servant leader's purpose. Okay, and I've been thinking about this word purpose quite a bit as I was studying for this and getting ready. And if you think about it, a lot of this world and a lot of us really struggle to find our purpose. You know, we think about what, what kind of job should I work and, you know, where should I live and what kind of things should I do? And we struggle to find our purpose. In the early 90s, um, there was a band called the Red Hot Chili Peppers, um, probably the first and only time they'll be mentioned from the pulpit. But they wrote a song called Under the Bridge that I think, in my opinion, is kind of an iconic song. And the first line of that song was, sometimes I feel like I don't have a purpose. We've all felt that way. Okay, think about it this way. The number one best-selling book of all time is the Bible. Number two, The Purpose-Driven Life by Rick Warren. People all over this earth looking for some kind of purpose. I remember working with college students. Um, I used to love working with college students. Um, and usually, every couple weeks, someone would come up to me and they would say, Chris, I met this girl, and she's the one. And it's like, well, how long have you known her? Well, 30 minutes, but I knew within those first couple of minutes that she was the one. Inevitably, things wouldn't work out. After a couple of weeks, that person would come back to me and say, Chris, I met someone else. This one is really the one and so on and so forth. Ultimately, somebody looking for purpose, I would notice as students got toward their junior and senior year, reality started to set in. What kind of job am I supposed to work? Where am I supposed to live? How am I gonna pay off my student loans? Who am I gonna marry? All of these questions, questions of purpose that they were wrestling with. Now here's the good news. Today, if you're in Christ, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, we all have a purpose. And so many times we focus on the what and not the who, the who we're doing things for rather than the what, the specifics. So today in Matthew chapter 9, we are going to see Jesus speak to a group, a group of people that we would say are on the margins of society. And in that, we are going to see three invitations that Jesus gives us. And in that, we're going to find our purpose as servant leaders and followers of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to read our passage for this morning, and then we'll open up in a word of prayer. So Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9, going down through verse 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For it came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. And, and we thank you, Lord, so much for this passage where we see your heart. 
for the lost. God, we're reminded that we were once sinners and that Christ died for us. God, this morning, speak through your word. Open our hearts, our ears to be attentive to what you want to say to us. God, help us to find our purpose in the kingdom of God as followers of you. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen. So Matthew chapter 9, there are three invitations that Jesus is giving us this morning as we seek to find our purpose. And the first invitation that we see, Jesus invites us to leave our old life behind and pursue new life in Christ. So you'll notice in verse 9, if you were to look back at it, that there is a phrase that you see throughout the Gospels. In fact, when Jesus calls his disciples throughout the Gospels, you usually see this phrase associated with. And that's the phrase, follow me. In fact, one of our adult discipleship classes this summer is called Follow Me, and it's about discipleship. So you see this phrase, follow me, and it sounds simple, and on paper it should be easy, um, but in life I've noticed usually it's not. Because the the meaning of follow me, it kind of gets jaded. It kind of gets convoluted a little bit when we throw a lot of things into the mix. If you think about it, we follow a lot of things in life. Some of us follow sports teams, and we know everything about the sports team. We know all the players, their backstories, all of that. Some of us follow, you know, politicians. We know their stances on all the issues. Some of us follow musicians, celebrities. We know all the songs. We sing them in our car and all of that. And sometimes the issue is we take following Jesus and we just add him to our list of things we're already following. And so the problem with that is that sometimes he's two, sometimes he's seven, sometimes he's at the bottom list, top of the list. But as we go about day to day, if we're not careful, we don't prioritize the right thing. We're following many different directions. It becomes tricky too. Um, it's tempting to cherry pick the teachings of Jesus. So as you read through the Gospels, you know, it might be easy to say, you know, I love when he says, follow me. And that's great when he talks about how much he loves me and how he died for me. That's not so great when he tells me I got to love my neighbor. Or that's not so great when he tells me I got to love my enemy. That's even worse. And when he tells me what to do with my money, like, I don't really like that either. And we start to cherry pick the teachings of Jesus. But at the end of the day, that's not really following Jesus. It's leaving our old life behind and embracing new life. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's that idea. It's leaving an old life behind. And that's tough. It's willing to say no to certain things for Jesus' sake, to be closer to Jesus and become more like Jesus. So this is a moment at the moment of salvation, but it's also daily. There's that daily call to deny ourselves and to follow Christ. There's a Presbyterian pastor who went home to be with the Lord um, probably about a year or so ago named R.C. Sproul. And he used to say it like this. The old man is in the grave, but he's still kicking and screaming. Okay. That's, and I know Pastor Dave's not here, that's the tension that we live in. To use a pastor, oh, he's right there. To use a Pastor Dave word. (laughs) 
that is the tension that we live in. Hey, Dave. <laughs> um, <laughs> was not counting on that. <laughs> but that's the tension that we live in. The old man is dead, but he's still kicking and screaming. Okay, we're still kind of working on this and trying to get closer to Jesus. Luke 5.11 puts it this way. When Jesus is calling his disciples, it has this summary statement of how his disciples decide to follow him. It says this, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything behind and followed him. Everything behind. I think about the hymn, I Surrender All. And and many of you have probably sung that hymn growing up. Um, You've sung it to this church, other churches. You're probably very familiar with the hymn. It's a great song. If you think about it in practicality, like just everyday life, it's kind of hard to sing. It's kind of hard to mean that and sing that. Because a lot of times, um, I surrender most, like sounds a lot better. (laughs) It's like, I'll give you most of what I have, but I've got these things I don't want anybody to know about, so we're going to keep them here. I'll surrender most. Maybe it's even, I surrender some. Okay, I'll give you a few things. That's not the invitation Jesus is giving us this morning. He wants us to surrender all. When he calls his disciples and he says, follow me, he's challenging them to leave everything they knew behind and to pursue a new life in Christ. We'll get to this in a second, but we're going to learn about Matthew today. He had a lot he had to leave behind. He had a whole lifestyle that he had to reject and leave behind in order to follow Jesus. So how do we do this? Because again, it it sounds great on paper. It's a lot harder to do in real life. And I think about Hebrews chapter 12, the first two verses. The author of Hebrews says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with the endurance of the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. There's two parts to this. There's two parts to this. So there's that first part, the laying aside of the sin that so easily entangles us. Um, And we would say, man, that's really, really hard. Because, you know, you have your time with the Lord, and then you get in the car, and somebody cuts you off, and um, your thought life is probably not the best at that moment, right? Like, the things you're thinking, you're like, oh, man, I really hope I don't act on that. It's not a good thing. But there's, there's, there's the hard work of growing in godliness and growing in holiness. It's the commitment to seeking God each day. It's the commitment to being with God's people who will hold you accountable and encourage you. But it's a commitment. Dallas Willard says it like this. Grace is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. There is nothing that we can do to earn the grace of God. He freely gives that to us. And that is freely available to each and every one of us this morning. But there's also that effort that we put in to get closer to Jesus. Out of love. Out of people who've already been loved by Jesus, we do that. 
So you might say, okay, so I just got to try my best, and if I try my best, that's how it'll happen. Not necessarily that leads us to step two. You notice in that passage, there was also the phrase, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Because if you just try not to do something for any extended period of time, you, you might get it right for a little while, but eventually you'll fail. Think of it this way. Let's say you've made up your mind that you're setting a budget. You're saving money. You're doing well. Get on your laptop. Amazon pops up. And guess what? There's a sale, and it's only for today. So if you don't get it by tomorrow, it'll be gone. And God forbid we don't go for the sale, right? We see things like that, and in our flesh, we have a moment of weakness, and we fail. Maybe you've committed to purity, and it's the same thing, and you've tried, and you've tried, and you have a moment of weakness, and you fail. This is why we need to focus on Jesus. When we just focus on not doing something, ultimately, our flesh will cave and we'll fail. When we focus on Jesus, it's not that it's easy, but we have someone walking alongside of us in the struggle. We have the Spirit of God to help us overcome our struggles. It's the laying aside of our sin, but it's the focusing on Jesus. It's both. It's pursuing godliness, but making sure our focus, that we are laser-focused on Jesus. So this morning, what would you say you're holding on to? What would you say makes it hard for you to sing the song, I Surrender All? What makes it hard for you to obey the command, follow me? It could be anything. I would say each of us, it's probably a different thing. And that's the beauty of the church. We have each other to help us with that. So Jesus invites us to leave our old life behind and he invites us to pursue new life in Christ. So back in our passage, our second invitation, Jesus asked us to get out of our comfort zone. Okay, so get out of our comfort zone. So all of us have a comfort zone. We would say, man, Trinity, like we're a comfortable place. Maybe your small group's a comfortable place. Maybe your home is a comfortable place with comfortable people and people who aren't really going to like disagree with you that much. People who generally see eye to eye with you on a lot of different things. That's a really comfortable place, yet Jesus challenges us to move out of that comfort zone. You'll see in verse 10, Jesus uses this phrase, tax collectors and sinners, and it says that he's reclining at a table. Basically, he's sitting down having dinner with these tax collectors and these sinners. These phrases are together on purpose. Basically, what the author is trying to tell us, he is saying, you know what, these tax collectors and sinners... We're talking like the lowest rung of society. Okay. The lowest rung of society. These are people that generally other people don't want to be around. Criminal. Doing all sorts of things that you really wouldn't want to be associated with. Tax collectors in that era, they were absolutely the lowest rung of society. Not only did they collect money for the government, um, they were skimming off the top. They were putting money in their own pockets. In fact, they were often seen as traitors to their own country because of their association with the Roman government. No one wanted to be around these people. They were tax collectors, they were sinners. You don't want a tax collector in your house. You want people you like in your house. You want people who are gonna respect your house rules. They're not gonna muddy up the carpet. They're not gonna talk about inappropriate things. Like, you want people who are fun in your house, right? Jesus does the opposite. He invites tax collectors and sinners and he has a meal with them. 
Now, I thought this was interesting. In my study going over this passage, I read this, and it really stood out, that in that time period, and I think there's a lot of crossover to today with this, in that time period, eating together was the highest form of social intimacy. Eating together was the highest form of social intimacy. And I think in a lot of ways, that probably crosses over into today. So think about this. If you're married, you can probably still remember um, your first date with your spouse. You can remember where you were, what you ordered. Gentlemen, you can remember thinking, please don't let me say something stupid. (laughs) Let this go well. Maybe you remember, I hope I have enough money to cover this. Like, you can remember all of those different things. Whether it was 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, you can remember exactly where you were and what you talked about. Maybe you got engaged over a nice meal. And ladies, you can remember telling all your friends, um, you know, how he just planned everything, how he got the ring you wanted, the conversation you had. Guys, again, you can remember, please let everything go well. Please help me remember the ring. Please just slide every... You remember all the time that went into that. I see these things on social media, gender reveals, when a couple's having a baby. And they have a big party to reveal the gender of the baby. And at the end, there's a celebration over a meal. At the same time, I can remember many, many years ago, um, sitting, at a, sitting at lunch with a friend as he described to me how his marriage fell apart. And he described to me Um, just everything that had happened between him and his wife. He described to me the pain of divorce over a meal. It was a very intimate moment. It was a very emotional moment, a moment that we shared together. I'm going to show you a picture right now to kind of describe this. Um, It should be up there. Can you guys see it? Um, So you guys are probably like, okay, Chris, why are you showing us a picture of a dingy Mexican restaurant um, with a bunch of people we don't know? Okay, great question. Um, So Jess and I are toward the back of that picture, um, and it's a really significant picture for this reason. That picture was taken August 1st, 2016. So August 1st, 2016 um, was our last night in Lynchburg, Virginia, before we moved to Connecticut. And I don't mean like our last couple of nights. I'm saying like we had an air mattress and like a few duffel bags in our apartments. Like everything else was packed in the moving truck. This was a very intimate time, to the point where I'm sure there were other people at the restaurant thinking, like, what's going on over there? Like, I hear laughing, I hear crying, like, that group over there is praying. But it was a special time. I treasure this picture in a lot of ways. I've seen maybe a couple of these people since then who've been in the area. Most of them I haven't seen. But it was just a time where we had friends praying over us and saying, we want to send you off to Connecticut. We were telling each other how we felt about each other. It was an incredibly emotional and incredibly intimate time. There's a lot that happens over the course of a meal. Even today, if you think about it, um, a lot of you are going to one of these picnics. And if you'll open yourself up, it can be an incredibly intimate time with God's people. You can walk away encouraged. So as we talk about really just this intimacy that happens over a meal. Jesus chooses to do this with tax collectors and sinners, people that really nobody else is inviting over to their house and nobody else is going to have a meal with. Jesus' ministry often crossed lines. 
It crossed social lines. It crossed economic lines. It crossed religious lines. He talked with people that a lot of other people would not bother to talk about. You might remember back in the spring, uh, Pastor Dan did a message on servant evangelism, and he talked about John chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman at the well. The amount of lines crossed in that moment of Jesus' ministry, it, it's astronomical. He's talking to a woman who's a Samaritan. Just all sorts of things that the average person would not do. The challenge for us is, are we willing to do the same? Are we willing to get outside of our comfort zone? So there is a natural pushback when we talk about this. Because people might say, or you might have in your mind, but Chris, can't you take this too far? Can't you take this too far? And doesn't, doesn't bad company corrupt good character? So, so Chris, what's the balance in this? And I would say, if you look at this passage, Jesus doesn't become a tax collector in the passage. He doesn't start doing all the things that the tax collectors do. When Jesus meets a woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8, he gives us kind of an outline of really how we're supposed to approach these situations. So I'm sure you are familiar with that story. I'm going to read the last couple verses from that moment in Jesus' ministry. John chapter 8, verses 10 and 11 say this. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So Jesus isn't saying to this woman, hey, your adultery is cool, just keep going for it. No. He says, neither do I condemn you, now go and sin no more. I fear that many people outside of the walls of our church have never heard this message. They might know what we're against. They know, you know, maybe the things that, that we pick on and maybe the sins that get us all riled up. But they've never heard, neither do I condemn you. They've never experienced the unconditional love of the Father. So this is challenging, because what would it take for us to get outside of our comfort zone? Because it takes proximity and presence to reach somebody. Now, you can have proximity and not necessarily have presence. You could be close to somebody, and you could be on your phone, you could be distracted, you could talk to somebody else, and not be, really be aware. It takes proximity and presence. I'm convinced what stops us from getting out of our comfort zone, what stops us from sharing Christ is not a lack of opportunity. It is a lack of intentionality. The opportunities are out there. I read a poll recently, um, and I won't pick on the younger crowd for, for too long. It's ages 18 to 29. Um, I'm outside of that, so again, I apologize if you're within 18 to 29. Ages 18 to 29 were polled. Um, 18 to 29 Christians, um, 85% of them said they have a responsibility to share the gospel, which is great. Unfortunately, only 25% say that they share the gospel on a regular basis. And probably around that same number, about 25% said that they befriend people outside of their comfort zone to do so. There's a disconnect between what we say we believe and how we live that out. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 9, verses 37 and 38. He says this, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, 
but the workers or laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So think about that. The harvest is plentiful. People are out there, but the workers are few. You've heard the stats. We live in Fairfield County, Connecticut. Probably about 2% of the population would identify themselves as evangelical Christians. 2%. There is a lot of people out there who need this message. And church, it starts with us. It starts with us getting outside of our comfort zone, being a little uncomfortable, being a little inconvenienced for the sake of the gospel. Our second invitation was Jesus asked us to get out of our comfort zone. Our third invitation, Jesus is inviting his church to move outside of their four walls. Jesus is inviting his church to move out. So you look back at our passage, verses 11 through 13. I'll go ahead and read them. It says, And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And let's stop there for a moment. This is not the Pharisees being inquisitive. Okay? They're not like curious. They're saying it in a very condescending tone. Like, why would your teacher ever eat with these tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus has a response. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. If you look at the Pharisees, we talked about the Pharisees a few weeks ago, but if you look at the Pharisees, you'll notice um, there's a lot of pride going on. There's a lot of this idea of they just think that they're so much better than these tax collectors and these sinners. And the thing about pride, it will keep you from helping others in need. Pride will absolutely keep you from helping others in need. When you think that you're so much better than somebody else, it will keep you from sharing Christ, from serving, from honoring him in all that you say and you do. The Pharisees had a knowledge about God. Their hearts were not transformed by Christ. Humility reminds us that each and every one of us, we were once sinners that Christ died for. It's that humility that we need to be grounded in day by day, knowing that we're no better than anybody else. We're beggars who found bread, and we want to tell all the other beggars where the bread is. It's a heart transformation that happens for us. And here's the other thing. You would see that Jesus says in this verse, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Um, and there's a little bit of, you know, we'll say sarcasm going on here because the Pharisees were not righteous people. They just had a sin issue that was less visible than these tax collectors. And a lot of times we're, we do the same thing. We say, man, do you see what that person's doing? Do you see what that person's doing? But at the end of the day, those people can't see our thought lives. They can't see the things that we, we think and see and do in private. It was a sin that was more visible to the outside world that the tax collectors had, where the Pharisee's sin was more a sin of the heart. It was less visible. The sick are in dire need of a physician. We have a disease that every single person is born with, a disease called sin. 
And thankfully, we have a cure. We have a cure through Jesus Christ, through his work on the cross. And I usually put it like this when we're in youth group. So imagine you had the cure for cancer and everybody else knew that you knew had cancer. And so you would talk about how great the cure was and how you were cured and how it was awesome. Um, you would maybe go to other meetings where a bunch of people talked about the cure. Then after that, you, know, you would sing songs about the cure. You had a t-shirt that said something about the cure. You went off to a retreat where other people talked about the cure. You came back from the retreat talking about the cure. But then you never actually gave the cure to those people dying of cancer. We would say that's kind of unloving, maybe even a little selfish, say that we have this amazing cure for someone who's sick, and we're just reluctant to give it out. Think about that. We have the gospel. We have the knowledge. We have a life with Jesus. We have God in us. We have the cure. Are we hoarding it to ourselves? Are we freely giving it as it has been freely given to us? This morning, you are a voice for Jesus wherever you are in your life. So at your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your home, with anybody you interact with, everybody has a sphere of influence. You have people you see regularly. You're a voice for Jesus in that sphere of influence. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And if you have a Bible this morning, I would encourage you, circle that phrase, the ministry of reconciliation. Because that is for you and for me and for anyone who's placed their faith in Christ. Think of it this way. The reconciled become agents for reconciliation. You become a voice. You become an agent for reconciliation. Again, this sounds challenging and it sounds hard. And you might say, but Chris, I'm not that outgoing and I'm not a great speaker and I'm not this and I'm not that. All you have to be committed to is living your life out for Jesus and taking the opportunities he gives you. If you pray for them, they will come. At our church in Virginia, before we moved up here, um, there was a phrase we used to repeat a lot. And the phrase was, who's your one? Who's your one? Who's one person in your life right now that you're consistently praying for, that you're consistently befriending and witnessing to, in order to see them come to Christ. So if this sounds intimidating to you, start with one person. One person you already know that you, can, that you can continue a friendship with and consistently pray for and lift them up to Jesus. So our perspective has to change on this. We live in a busyness of Fairfield County. We have a lot going on. We have a lot we're thinking about. And my perspective on this changed when I was in high school. So a quick story. Um, I was probably 14 or 15, um, and I was over at a friend's house for a party. Um, I realized that these are recorded, and my mom's going to watch this, so sorry, Mom. Um, I was at a party. Um, <laughs> I was 14 or 15 at this party. 
Um, I said I was a Christian. Like, I went to youth group, um, but I was kind of one foot in, one foot out. I was the guy surrender some kind of person. And so I went to this party. Um, probably 25 to 30 people were there. I remember leaving, and I remember the next day talking with another friend who was at this party who was a Christian. And I said to her, wasn't that party so great? Did you have so much fun? And she said this back to me, and it stood out for all these years. She said, Chris, did you ever think that we were the only two people in that house that are going to go to heaven? Chris, did you ever think that out of everybody that was there, it was just us and we didn't say anything? It kind of ruined the mood for me. I'm not going to lie. (laughs) I was not there thinking like that I was going to lead some revival. But those words stick with me. Now, almost anywhere I go, and I challenge you with those words, think about your workplace right now. What if you're the only one in your office that's going to see Jesus in eternity? And he has you for such a time as this to share the grace of Jesus Christ with them. What if you're the only person in your home right now, and he has you in that home to share with your kids, with your spouse What if you're the only one in your neighborhood and he's given you a house with a yard and really he wants you to enjoy it, but he wants that to be a tool where you invite others in, where you sit and you recline and you relax and you eat with tax collectors and with sinners because you've so experienced the love of the Father and you can't help but to invite others into that. Church, this morning, who's your one? Are you willing to move out? Are you willing to lift up the lost in prayer? Are you willing to seek out your coworkers, your neighbors, your family members? Are you willing to do this for Jesus' sake? This morning, Trinity, I want you to think about this. Are you living out your purpose? Are you living out your purpose? Our purpose is to be a people that bring others back to the love of Jesus Christ. That's our purpose. We've experienced the love of Jesus. And so we can't help but bring other people to him. I fear sometimes that we get more caught up in the gospel of Fairfield County than we do in the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of Fairfield County says this, your purpose is your bank account. Your purpose is the things you own. Your purpose are the things you can achieve. The gospel of Jesus is the opposite. Think about Jesus' baptism in Luke chapter 3. When the father says down to the son, behold, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, that is true of you. The father looks down at you and says, behold, this is my son. This is my daughter with whom I'm I'm well pleased. When you've experienced God's love like that, when you know that he feels that way about you, that he thinks that way about you, when you recognize that he loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus for you, you can't help it. You can't help but invite others into this life that Jesus offers. So this morning, Trinity, are you living out your purpose.
Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. God, and why we struggle in this world to find our purpose, we know um, we have a love that can be found, an acceptance that can only be found in you. God, I pray that anytime we come to your word, we would walk away, as, Lord, as changed people. So God, this morning, help us to be intentional with our neighbors. Help us to be intentional with the people, God, that you've placed in our lives. God, they're not there by accident. Help us to be a voice for you in this world. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Our ushers are going to come forward and take our offering. And we're going to sing, we sing a song we talked about just a second ago. I surrender all.